there was a pimp in Los Angeles who had tattooed his name on the face of over 50 girls. And uh, we had a young woman. She was the first one he branded, and he branded his name across her chest because she didn't want it on her face, and he respected that. And when she did her interview, they asked her, well, how did you feel when he branded you? And she said, he didn't brand me. She said, I was proud that he wanted me. Hey guys, I'm Ashley Dawn Rivard, and you are now into The Dawn, a provocative podcast that looks at all things taboo, such as suicide, grief, sex, addictions, and more. Each week, I talk with experts who successfully investigate their areas of interest. And if you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe. Children of the Night is a privately funded nonprofit organization established in 1979 by Dr. Lois Lee. She is the world's leading expert in rescuing child sex trafficking victims. Dr. Lee holds a PhD in sociology and anthropology, a Juris Doctor in Law, and is an active member of the California State Bar. Children of the Night's mission is to provide intervention in the lives of children who are sexually exploited and vulnerable to or involved in prostitution and pornography. Dr. Lee maintains a 70 to 80% success rate with her life-changing work that mobilizes children from prostitution to a successful adult life. I was looking at your site and I know in 1979, you started taking children in from the streets, right? So what was your driving force to do that? Did you always want to be in trafficking, helping? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) I was was on track to be a college professor. I was teaching college part-time as an instructor. It's in a PhD program at UCLA in sociology and anthropology. And my professors told me I had to do quantitative analysis. And I decided uh, with some friends from the ACLU who suggested that I uh, get a lawyer to um, open up the records so that I can analyze police reports filed on prostitution. And we sued the Los Angeles Police Department. So I was only doing this quantitative analysis for the purposes of my dissertation. And um, I had no intentions of doing anything more. And uh, what happened was that in the courtroom when I was testifying as a statistician, I met young women who were prostituting and they started asking me to help them with things unrelated to prostitution. Uh, One young woman wanted to get off heroin, but she didn't want to stop prostituting. And I didn't have any feeling about it either way. And I said, yes, I can help you get off heroin. And I found a program and I found that she needed Medi-Cal and then to get Medi-Cal, she needed a birth certificate and then she needed a photo ID and then um she needed just um i don't know what else she needed it, it, it was a nightmare to get her services where most people would have those documents could go in and get medical medical and get methadone and uh we put it together she worked the streets for several months while we were putting those documents together and her mother was very helpful and um when we finally did i drive her to uh her methadone clinic every morning at seven o'clock which i hated because i like to sleep late and i like to work all night And I'd pick her up at her pimp's house and take her to get her dose of methadone and drop her back off at her pimp's house. And uh, she called me one day and said, I can't stay here anymore because I'm losing my hair from the methadone. I'm lazy. I'm getting fat. I don't want to sleep all the time. And um, it's going to beat me up again. Can I come stay at your house while I finish the methadone? I said, yes. So she came to my house and one thing turned to another and, and, uh, and, 
in the court cases, I had met girls who, um, there had been 10 young women who had been killed by the Hillside Stranglers, which were serial murders, and the police had not done much and had no leads. And one young woman was an 18-year-old uh, madam who was a heroin addict. She was, ran an escort service. And she called me one night. She sent a girl out to meet a guy. He wasn't answering his phone. The girl didn't call back. Just a lot of protocol was violated. And I proceeded to track down that the call came from a pay phone. He got someone into the apartment to get, find the address he had changed, had the address, location, where she was, where the guy was, called the police. They refused to go because she was just a whore. So I went into the police station, was there for several hours. And then at, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning, I called came home, I called a news reporter who'd been covering the court cases where I was suing the police. And I said, get up, we got another one. And he went out and verified her car was there. And he couldn't get in the building, it was a security building. And um, uh, the next morning, all the cops were there and she was Hillside Strangler victim number 11. And uh, I was very angry and I went on the news and said, if you're involved in the prostitution business and you think you know who the Hillside Strangler is and you don't want to call the police, don't call them, call me. And uh, my phone became the hotline for pornographers and pimps and organized crime, strip club owners, uh, madams, prostitutes for tips on the Hillside Strangler. And fortunately, KABC and KNBC and KFWB joined me and we split up those tips and we followed them and went out and interviewed people. And the police basically followed us because at that point I refused to speak to the police. And, um, and I found kids working, you know, in strip clubs massage parlors and stuff. And the people in the business said, you know, I don't want kids. She's got a fake ID. I'll go to prison for this. Here, you take the kids. And over the next three years, over 250 kids came to my apartment. Um, I thought that I could just change the system so that they'd be eligible for foster care. And I couldn't. And I thought that I could get convinced judges to put them in treatment programs and they wouldn't. And uh, this is before the word trafficking ever existed. And um, there was a little documentary done on me and um, members of President Reagan's kitchen cabinet called and said, um, Lois, we're going to put this program together for you. And, and uh, they gave me some money to where I could move it out of my house and set up a drop-in center in the heart of Hollywood, which we were seeing thousands of kids per year coming in, taking showers, getting clothes and food. And uh, I was there for 81 to probably 86. I was profiled on... 60 Minutes in 86, 87, 87 and uh, raised millions of dollars and set, bought a building and set up a 24-bed shelter home. Uh, specific, and still the word trafficking had not been invented yet. Um, I, I, what happened was that Congressman Berman, had, I've always been supported by private funds, and that was because, initially, because there was the only money. The government refused to give money. I'd written government grants and stuff, but it was just... It, I had to have local support. Local politicians didn't want to admit that this was a problem. It, it just was not going to happen. And uh, the Republican Party liked it a lot because it was a private initiative. It was volunteerism. It was private money. And they garnered a lot of support to get me up and get me going. Um, the uh, um, I forgot what your question was. How did the word trafficking? Oh, the word trafficking. So that was when yeah. Berman had said, here's your chance. Go to Janet Reno, who is the new U.S. Attorney's. General, go to her, her town hall meeting. Here's your chance to ask her the question. And I asked her, what do you plan to do with children who are transported from state to state for purposes of prostitution? Your people won't prosecute them under the Mann Act. And she said, I'm going to give you a private fax number, and I want you to fax to me the names of the people who work for me who won't prosecute these cases. 
and she moved the federal government. She's been lost in the shuffle and doesn't get credit for the work that she did because she's the one who started it. And, um, mm. and they started it with great reluctance because they didn't believe it. And um, everybody that I was working with, local law enforcement, myself, we were all like heavily investigated, you know, and um, not criminally, but, you know, looked at. And then the government decided this was a great issue and they went back and held a conference and uh, said they were going to set up the first program. Like I got lost in the shuffle for a while. And um, they, uh, they invented the word trafficking because the word trafficking, they needed to show that there was interstate commerce, that there was movement between the states to give the federal government jurisdiction. So it was invented for those purposes. Interesting. And what is the difference then between human trafficking and sex trafficking? Well, human trafficking is largely labor trafficking and sex trafficking is a small slice. What do these men call themselves? If they're soliciting these children, what business are they in, do they feel? They're they're, they're men. (laughs) They're hustlers. They're hustlers. But today it's controlled by gang members. So they would be, they'd refer to their gang identity. And, and, And the girls, you know, take great pride being affiliated. I, I know that we had a young woman, at a, a major news outlet wanted to do a, sh- a story on how these girls were branded with tattoos um, by pimps, gang members. And we had a young lady, there was a pimp in Los Angeles who had tattooed his name on the face of over 50 girls. And uh, we had a young woman, she was the first one he branded and he branded his name across her chest because she didn't want it on her face and he respected that. And when she did her interview, they asked her, well, how did you feel when he branded you? And she said, he didn't brand me. She said, I was proud that he wanted that he wanted me. I was proud to be associated. I was proud to be the first. I take great pride in being with him. He's a, he's a, he's a major, a major, you know, a major player. And over her voice, they're saying, this girl was branded by. Well, that was not what was coming out of her mouth. So all of the children you take in, they voluntarily... I don't take them in anymore. We closed our shelter because the law changed at the end of 217. And um, it said that if you have contact with the sex trafficking victim, you have to call this human trafficking hotline, which is a front for the FBI. And that means the FBI comes out and interviews these kids, sometimes with guns drawn. And um, if there's a pimp involved, the child goes to juvenile hall in solitary confinement and is held there until they testify against the pimp. If uh, there is no pimp involved, they're forced into foster care. And if they run from foster care, they can't enroll in school and they can't um, get medical treatment anywhere without being returned to foster care. So, it, so it, it's a mixed bag. It's good that they're eligible for foster care, but, but it's harder on the kids that are older um, that don't want to be in foster care. Many of them are you know, molested in foster care. Um, it's, it's something that I wanted to see. I think that that part's good. I don't like the fact that children are held in jail until they testify. Um, and oftentimes they're testifying against loved ones or family members. The loved ones? I know this is not what you normally hear. Yeah. So the loved ones and family members are the ones that are, quote unquote, their pimp in a way? Could be. Could be an uncle. You know, could be a dad. There's lots of dads of pimp. Could be a mom. You know, loved one could be a boyfriend. Could be a brother. I'm baffled by this, the family dynamic. I, what stem, where does that stem from? 
like is that a mental health does mental health and sex traffic comes from poverty so most of them come from poverty um a great deal come from poverty um other kids who don't come from poverty the pimps typically come from poverty and the other kids that don't um have disconnected with their families typically because they've been you know uh, sexually abused at home um or gang raped or something not maybe not at home but you know we had a case where uh, a very wealthy family and the young girl was had a, a, a scholarship uh for i think it was basketball uh to any college she wanted to go to and everything was going great something happened one day her mother took her to a therapist um the therapist would not tell the mother what had happened because of confidentiality and the young woman she agrees with that position she doesn't think her mother should have been told and she just kind of fell apart before she went to college she ended up going to a state university disappeared was with the biggest pimp in um the united states um who's someone that i ended up testifying against he's now writing me from prison and i'm trying to figure out what to say to him and and she loved him hmm. And uh, you know there, there's a game, a psychological game. There's 22 tried and true strategies that pimps use in order to get girls involved in prostitution. And he'd use those strategies on her. Uh, he created an illusion that um, he had saved her life. And the way he did that was so he became her savior, her rescuer. Is that he? He's. It was very hard to convince her that this was something that he was in control of. A man had picked her up, drove her to a location, and was beating her up and was going to kill her. And the pimp pulls up. I call him pimp. Pulled up, and uh, he pulled the guy off her and saved her life. I said, "You don't understand. That guy worked with him. How would he have known where you were in the car when the guy drove off with you? That was, you know, that was, you know, that's how he set himself up as your savior." Mm. Um, they always, you know, take the money and put the money aside, saying the police will take the money off you. That I'm going to buy a house and a business, and you're going to live with me, and you're going to have my baby. These are kids who are disconnected. What had happened to her, and what I finally got her to tell me, I said, "So what happened?" And what had happened to her when she was in high school? She was raped by the football team. Gang raped. Gang raped. Gang raped by the football team. Wow. And her mother never knew what had happened. But I said something happened to her beforehand. And she ended up. I worked with her, and she ended up testifying against this pimp. And he was he was the police. It was funny because I called this police officer to help me with her, with her because she was in jail somewhere, and I was trying to track her. And he didn't call me back. And he always called me back. And finally, he calls me the next day and says, "I'm so sorry. I just arrested the biggest pimp in town, pimp in the country." And I named him. He said, "How do you know that?" He says, "How do you know that?" And I said, "Because I have the victim." He said, "Oh my God! I need to talk to her. I need to talk to her." I says, "Well, slow down, slow down, because she doesn't want to talk yet. Um, you know, and this is the way we need it. She wants her clothes and stuff." I says, "Do you have his car?" He says, "Yeah, his car is an impound. Will you give her his clothes?" He said, "Yeah, I will." I said, "Okay, I'll set it up. I'm going to have her call you, but do not ask her about testifying. That you have to do this my way, or you're not going to. She's not going to work." And um, he said, "Okay." So she called him, and he said, "Yeah, I'll get. I'll get your. Um, I'll get your." I'll get your stuff for you when you come see Lois. Let me know. And so then she decided she was going to come see me. She wanted to tell the children in my shelter not to do what she did. And uh, it was I, I had a shelter home at the time. I had about twenty kids there. And there's a thirteen year old who 
uh, walked over to her and was saying, what are you doing? And, and what happened to you? And they started talking and the 13 year old said, yeah, I go to court tomorrow to testify against the guy who did this to me. And she looked at her and she said, you're 13 years old and you're gonna testify against him? She said, yeah. And this girl turned around, looked at me and said, if a 13 year old can do it, I can do it. Oh. And so then she went to pick up her clothes and I called the detective. I said, you can ask her now if she wants to testify. And she did and he got a long, long prison sentence. Wow. So, so, so that, that's the way it needs to be done. It, should, it, doesn't, it shouldn't be, you know, um, where you're forced, or you're held in jail and forced to do that. This, you know, because the healing comes, it, the, the testifying against a, a pimp or a trafficker should be a healing experience. It should be something that you're doing in order to get out of jail. You know, I, I, the one of the little girls I recently got out of jail, I took her shopping and because she didn't have any clothes. She didn't have anything. She was there for three years. And uh, and we spent over a hundred dollars on underwear, but I I wasn't going to stop her because she'd been wearing paper underwear for three years. No, oh right. My God. So um, and I have another little girl who was there for thirty days, and she tried to hang herself uh, fifteen times in thirty days. And the mother and the uh, probation officer went to court and begged the, the judge, please let her out. And the judge said, Okay, I'll send her to Lois. So she's, you know, doing, doing our tutoring program. So when this law changed at the end of 2017, I said, I told the state I'm closing down. And they said, no, no, there's money. I said, it's not about money. I said, it's, I'm not going to call and report these kids to, to, to law enforcement so that they can be put in jail. And I'm, I'm not going to work for you. And I'm not going to um, take money from foster care. And, and then you tell me how to take care of them and tell me what they can do. Because one of the problems is, you know, foster or social workers are often afraid. So some will sign permissions for you to take a kid horseback riding. Some won't. And so you end up with the haves and the have-nots. You know, I'm not going to do that. You know, we, we always received our kids from parents. It was parental consent. We'd have parents sign to give us permission. So we could take them snowboarding and swimming and kayaking and all those things without the hiccup of trying to track down the parent to get them to sign a form each time. So we ran in Disneyland. Nike provided all of the clothes and the shoes for our kids. And um, Beverly Hills hairdressers did their hair for free. And in Beverly Hills, they'd sit next to movie stars and they got to go to the gift places uh, at uh, the gifts, the gift, whatever the things they do at the Grammys and the Academy Awards. And we have actors and actresses come out and do acting workshops and they did arts and crafts and everything. So, but kids were like then all of a sudden at a point where they, they weren't going to stay, they were afraid. And they weren't allowed cell phones when they were in the shelter because it was dangerous because they could call a pimp and tell a pimp where everybody was going. Um, and they were addicted to their social networks. And so now when the kids ran and they said, I can't stay here anymore, Lois, I'm going. I said, wait, wait, I'm going with you. And I adapted my program to where I could go online with them and deal with them through social networks and also deal with them through phones, through our hotline and took our classroom. We had a private school with hundreds of kids in college and took our private school and put it online. And the only requirement is that they tutor for one hour twice a week. And they don't miss their tutoring lessons. If they do, they go back to the waiting list. And last year, we tutored 177 young sex trafficking victims across the country for the high school diploma. We pay for the test. We even give them an Uber to, to go take the test. And we do the case management in terms of the food and the medical services. They don't want to go to shelter. Mm -hmm. they, they, don't, they don't want to go to jail. Is that Has that changed, though? I read, I believe, that um, they no longer look at these children as criminals 
now they look at them as victims. Yes, they're victims. So they're put in juvenile hall on material witness holds for their own good, held to protect them until they testify against the criminal. They're not held for being prostitutes. So it's like, you know, you have to really watch, you know, it infuriates me to see uninformed legislation come out of Congress when they don't understand the social impact. You know, they give with the left hand and they take away the right hand. It's, it's, um, it's ignorant. Well, what then what legal protection exists to for children against trafficking? Just that? Well, protection in terms, I think the protection has to be early on in the home. I think children who are born to drug addicted parents uh, should be removed from those parents until the parents are clean. And uh, and that's something that's very easy to do with a hair follicle test. Um, but um, social services doesn't really want to take on all those babies. You know, remember there was a law saying you had to have a, a car seat in order to take your newborn baby home. Well, guess what? A lot of poor people went to the hospital and didn't have car seats, so now the hospital gives them the car seat. So unless we want to deal with, you know, the creation of this, you know, many of these children were raised in crack houses and drug houses, and mothers sold them for drugs. Mothers watched while they were being raped. So you're not, you know, it's not what the government has given you that the boogeyman, you know, has reached into the bedroom of a loving home and grabbed a little girl and taken her away and forced her into prostitution. That's not what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, these kids, it's early on. It's easy to tell, you know, what their lives are going to be like. Juvenile police officers see it on the street all the time. I used to teach them and I would teach them again. I just don't have time now. Um, but they begged me to come back about how to detect these kids and how to divert them from the system because their hands are tied in terms of following protocol. So I closed our shelter program and, and went totally digital online with our education and online and on phone with our, our case management services and increased my client base by 90%. You know, when you can in the shelter, you could take 59 to 80 kids a year at $2 million. It's like now $1.4 million. You can help 500 kids with case management and another 177 get a high school diploma. We've gone global. So we're, we're tutoring child sex trafficking victims in Christian homes in Southeast Asia, Nepal, India, Africa, Dominican Republic. The sex trafficking all across the world is all very similar. It all stems from in the home. Well, it, it, it's a lot of it comes from poverty and, um, and, and particularly in developing countries. And it's where oftentimes, you know, Men will go into villages and convince families to give them the oldest daughter and they're going to take them to get a job and they're going to send the money back home and the job's trafficking and they can't get out. And I don't know how much money actually goes back home, but I think the parents get some money up front. In Ben, Africa, girls are kind of groomed to uh, be prostitutes and it's aunts and uncles who help escape them, help them get across the borders to prostitute in Rome. If you get caught and you get deported and you go home, your family's so humiliated and embarrassed. They don't want you to come back home. They want you to get back across the border and make money because enough women do to where they come back and buy their family's mansions and, and, um, and, and food and furnishings and materialistic things. So, so a lot of it is poverty driven. It's desperate driven. And then what you have is you have young girls who, who come from middle class families who, you know, may have been molested at home uh, by a dad, a stepdad, another relative, a neighbor. Uh, or gang raped, you know, by the college, famous college football team. And there's always a loss of sexual dignity. And uh, the pimp comes in, he's smooth talking, he's fancy talking, or she's in the wrong area at the wrong time, and she gets beaten to submission. But usually, 
the, the girls who are with pimps have great affinity for the pimps for the most part. When you hear the horror stories of all the things he did to them, yes. But we also hear that in domestic violence and many of the women go back, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the violence is mixed up with endearment. Mm-hmm. So it's very much the same phenomenon. Um, the only issue is the, is the sex. Well, if your sexual dignity has been taken from you, what's the big deal of getting paid for sex? And the word trick, you know, is, is a word that is what they call the man who pays the prostitute. And, and the word trick is, is the deception that goes on. He's giving her something of no value to him, which is money. And she's giving away something of no value of her, which is her sex, because she's lost her sexual dignity. Not a big deal. Um, and I, I, I'm victim driven. I mean, I'm dealing with the kids and listening to what it is they have to say. And, uh, and I'm not a member of law enforcement. I have lots of friends in law enforcement who know what I say is true. Um, and then there's a lot of people in law enforcement. In the beginning, I worked very closely with the FBI. But as I saw that their self-interest, that the kinds of people that were involved in this in the FBI, not the early ones, but the other ones were not interested in the welfare of kids. I'll give an example of a case. Um, We had a a 16-year-old girl, and uh, there was a pimp involved, and she was staying with us in our shelter home. Uh, There was an FBI agent involved, and uh, we kept calling him to find out, you know, where the pimp was because we took our kids out every Friday. We wanted to take them to Magic Mountain, and that was the area the pimp was in. And we needed to know if he knew she had told on him, if if he had been arrested, if he's out on the streets. We didn't need to know anything about his case, but he wouldn't call and give us the information. Once it's my information, it's our information. We don't have to tell you. Well, what do I do? I make her stay back and not participate. So, of course, we took her to Magic Mountain with 20 other kids, and she looks up, and there he is, and he sees her. So she's terrified and everything. She comes back and it turns out that she tells me the story about how when she's prostituting, the girls are getting dressed up as prostitutes in a motel near, near Magic Mountain and that there's little kids, two-year-olds, one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds watching this and that when they're having sex with men, they're having sex with men in cars and they've got the kids in the back seat and they tell the kids to turn, turn around so they can't see. And they may put little earmuffs over them so they can't hear. And they want, and she wants the FBI to go out and rescue those children. And they said, that's not our job. They're not sex trafficking victims. Our job, you call Department of Children's Services, have a social worker go out there. Well, social workers aren't going to go out there. It's too scary. So, wow. Those, those are the, those are those. That's the story of sex trafficking. That are real stories that happen every single day that no one else is going to tell you, unless they're victim driven. And many, even people that are victim driven, are funded by the federal government, so they can't speak. Wow, wow. So the solution, uh, what I'm hearing, please correct me if I'm wrong. It's really not in law. Not law enforcement can't solve this. It they have a role. Thing is, is it's easy to determine early on. When they're born, whether the parent's drug addicted, that's one indicator. The other indicator is is Head Start programs have an opportunity to identify they have no one to call. And uh, preschools, the same thing. And elementary schools, it can all be determined very early on where something can be done. Our Department of Children's Services nationwide is a mess. They're overloaded. They're they're too regulated. 
um, so that anybody with creativity is either just um, goes along because it's a job and not, not and they see the wrongs, they talk about it or or they just become part of the problem. Now, do these kids have a high rate of suicide? Do you know? No, they don't. They have a lower rate of suicide than kids that are just uh, sexually abused, just child abuse. Why? And I know this because I'm on a couple of dissertation committees um, at Fuller Theological Seminary, Fuller uh, Community Clinic. Um, Fuller um, ended up doing uh, evaluations, psychological evaluations on our kids who we sent to them who had learning disabilities or who had severe emotional problems that would qualify for social security disability. And we needed the documentation. So then it's not, it's not a random sample. We sent kids that we knew were severely troubled and they ran the test, the, the test, cause the only, the only test they had were the tests for child abuse and they ran tests and, and they measured the depression and the suicide and, and executive functioning and everything against the scores typically that a child abuse victim um, would have. And they're about to start publishing, which I'm really excited about. And they found that they had a lower rate of depression and a lower lower rate of suicide, and they were higher higher functioning multitasking. Well, I'm I, this is this is a shock to me because as being on the suicide lines, you know, I would say, gosh, I want to like 98 percent is I hear sexual abuse, right? Yeah. Not hearing sex trafficking problem. No, what did you say? Not sex trafficking? Sexual abuse. Correct. Sexual. But so what do you think that fine line that switches? Do you feel it's because they felt validated? They feel some type of love from their pimp or a community that. Yes, they do belong to a subculture, a subculture that most of us disrespect or we, we snub, snub, but they do belong to something. And and child, prostitution is a one upsmanship on child abuse. You're not you can do this to me but you're going to pay me and I'm going to control what you're going to do and how long you're going to do it. And there's all kinds of rules of what you do when you engage with the customer in terms of where you hide the money. Um, you never let him get on top of you because, because you could get hurt. You know, there's, there's all kinds of protocol for that. So there's some type of sense of empowerment, maybe false empowerment, but like, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting. I don't know what the suicide rate is among uh domestic violence victims, but you, because you don't hear too much about that, but you do hear a lot about how many, how sometimes they're facing criminal charges because they killed their abuser. I, that'd be an interesting study. And I was going to ask you about the, the gay transgender community. Do you have a high demographic in sex trafficking with that? Our, our transgender contact is, is much higher, I think, than just our gay contact. In the beginning, up until probably the first 20 years, 40% of our clients were gay boys. Um, the gay community service center, gay, lesbian, transgender, queer, I can't remember all the terms, have encompassed and have developed wonderful programs in a community and a culture um, that that takes care of that pretty much. I remember I w- when I was volunteering at your shelter, mm-hmm. um, I would come once a month and do games with the kids. And then you had an appreciation volunteer appreciation. And I think it was near the holiday. And I remember listening to the kids got up to, to share their story or they wrote a letter home and there was a boy and I had, I had interacted with him over a few months and he was reading his letter to his mother and just bawling because he hated her so much. And I just, I was bawling. I was just like, Oh, I couldn't even the, the pain 
you know, and, and then the beauty that what you gave them, you know, I know they loved you. And so how does that play on you? How does, I mean, literally like you're taking in these kids, do you get attached? Do you feel, I mean, obviously you feel responsible in a way, but I mean, you just have so many you're looking after. How do you disassociate, you know? I don't disassociate, um, but I'm very practical in terms of um, making sure that, 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 that I can take care of them. And I accept the fact that they are who they are. Um, one of the kids and I, we just interviewed for some media and, and she said something, I will never forget the day Dr. Lee said to me, if you want me to buy your books and school supplies when you're in college, I'll do that. And if you want me to hold your hand when you're dying of AIDS, I'll do that too. Wow. So, and, and I've done that plenty. I was really known among at Cedar sinai in the AIDS ward. Um, I was fairly well known there because I had many kids that were there. And them did die. Oh my God. Yeah. Your heart is so big. You know, I, I, do you have kids of your own? Do you have time for yeah. Wow. Wow. You're this, you're just amazing. All the work that you've done and, and are doing. And I just appreciate you sharing what you do. I never have to worry about what I'm going to do next. I'm busy. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Wow. Now uh, I'll just wrap it up. Is there anything that you feel people can do to help your mission? Well, we need donations all the time. And the easiest way to do that is to go to our website, childrenofthenight.org. And donation, no donation is too big or too small. Um, we spend 85% of our money on program. Um, so we're not, we're not top heavy by any means. Um, and we're constantly working uh, with the pandemic, with, with the coronavirus. We came up with things to do so staff could work remotely. Our tutors could work remotely on lesson plans and, and uh, flashcards and, and tools that we need. Our case managers have really taken over in terms of dealing with the students that are being, were being tutored who are now have lost their jobs and they need food and they need water and they need you know, medical supplies and toilet paper. They need the same things everybody else does. It's hard on them because they've gone from success to having jobs and being out of prostitution to losing their jobs. Um, they're not likely to go back to prostitution because the only place you can really prostitute right now under these circumstances is on the streets or through webcams. And that's, a, you can, you can do it, but to get a following is very hard. It's elaborate. Um, so they've, and they've broken most of those ties. Hmm. So, uh, we do encourage them to try and do school online, but with us and also with college, um, we, we have laptops donated to us all the time that we give to our kids. Um, but many of them have children and so they can't do it. Mm. And, and many of them have children in schools that they weren't provided lesson plans. So we're developing lesson plans for those schools. Wow. That's amazing. Those yeah. Awesome. So you just have to do it. You have to figure out where the gap is and you just have to do it. And um, being free of government allows us to do that. I don't have to write a letter or an amendment to a grant or anything like that. I just, we meet the need, we see the need, we meet the need, we hear the need, we answer the call. That's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Please let me know what you think. Leave a comment, share, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.